Hello and welcome to another episode of Midiera Meets, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music industry. This month I'm speaking to Steve Grimley-Taylor of Thunk, which is a Eurorack retailer selling kits and cases and everything you need for your modular synthesizer. Steve's ran his own record label. He's also been instrumental in Brighton Modular Meet. He works with Tom Whitwell on Music Thing Modular, and he has also released records on Planet Mew. So we had plenty to talk about, and we met up in Brighton early this year to discuss all of those things. What were your first memories of music? My first memory of music was uh, my mum playing the Pastoral Symphony quite a lot. I can't remember the composer, but I used to sing that like a maniac as a three-year-old. Uh, and then, but I guess the point where music really uh, started to excite me was, it came a lot from television, I think, which was quite common in the late 70s, um, through hearing things from the Radiophonic Workshop on programmes and Doctor Who, um, things like the music from Tomorrow's World. Um, it was just a really interesting time because you'd get the kind of influence of something like Kraftwerk on, on theme tunes on TV, which is really strong, but then also kind of weirder stuff from the Radiophonic Workshop. Um, and then you know, it was just a, it was a real, really fascinating time for pop music because you were coming out of the 70s, out of things like disco, I guess what was coming out of New York, which is disco, hip hop, punk coming out of New York and London. There was just so many new forms of music at that time. Um, and that had such a big influence on the British charts. And also for me, you know, just hearing synth pop for the first time as well. Mm. And what sort of uh, what sort of bands were you listening to when you were sort of when you in your maybe in your teenage years? What sort I of guess, stuff were you listening well, to? Well, I guess once I got to my teenage years, it was um, sort of eighty five, eighty six. There was there were things in the charts like um, Jackie Body and uh, Mars and Paul Hardcastle, and there were there, there were lots of kind of um, electronic and sampler based things and those, those haven't really converged into genres at that point and that was a really interesting time um, but also I remember kind of the first De La Soul album being a big deal and Three Feet High and Rising yeah, yeah. yeah. which it's again it's a great album and it, and it has a really strong I guess it has a really strong lineage to, to Electro as well and a lot of kind of sampled synth stuff on there that I really like the sound of. And then I kind of then went on to listening to a lot of, um, I guess, industrial music, stuff maybe on mute records and some kind of heavier stuff like Ministry, um, Nights of Rap and that kind of stuff. Um, and then... I moved to Sheffield, I was living in Coventry and I moved to Sheffield, which one of the reasons I went there was because the Warp Records shop was there, which was really good. Mm-hmm. And Warp was still in Sheffield and there was, you know, there was still interesting nights happening. And then that kind of evolved into an interest in 
Detroit techno and Chicago acid house, that kind of stuff. And that's the point when I started making music as well. Oh, really? Oh, you got in. So, what, what sort of early stuff did you use to make music? I, um, in about, I guess it was about 93, I had a Roland R8 drum machine, which was, was really good. Very um, good machine. I had a Novation bass station, which was okay, wasn't so good. Uh, you know, you can't, I don't know, there's only so little you can spend on an analog synth for it to, you know, sound great. Do what you do, yeah. Was it the rack mounted one or the keyboard? It was the keyboard one. It was not, I mean, it was nice. How Actually having a synth to tweet was, was a lot of fun. I mean, that, you know, definitely got me started. But I guess, I guess at that point, the big thing was Akai had just put out an S the S2000, which was, I think it was the first really capable but affordable sampler. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people have done amazing things with the, the S900 and 950. Um, and the, the limitations on it were great, but the S2000 in terms of memory and outputs and effects, I think, you know, it just made it so easy. Was it 32 megabytes of RAM? 16 maybe? I think, yeah, maybe 32. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe not even that much. Maybe it was 16. I mean, I think the 950 had a meg. <laughs> I, don't, I just don't remember. Um, but that was amazing, you know. And that, I, I think also, my involvement with music at that point, I was kind of involved and really friendly with the guys who run a label called Spy Mania. Actually, who are based in Brighton, where I live now. Who were based in Brighton. Um, and they they put out the first records by Square Pusher. Wow, really? Um, and and then later on also uh, Jamie Dell as well, who's in Super Collider, and then was a um, a solo artist on what records? So yeah, I think I have some of your records. I think I do have a couple of Super Collider. Isn't Super Collider also a program? For, it is a, for also a program making yeah. music. Yeah, like a bit like Pure Data or something. Yeah, very much like that. But I think totally text based. But the the band, <laughs> uh, Christian Vogel and yeah, Jamie Liddell, that was that was that was quite a big influence later on on me. But yeah, at that point, it was really interesting what people like Square Pusher were doing with samplers. Um, and the, you know, I think actually there's a, there's a there's a line that goes through all the music and a lot of things that I've done is is embracing an, an absurd mm -hmm. level of of work uh, of uh, of kind of flow and workload yeah. to get something done. Of either crazy intense editing or just just getting into the fact that you know you, a lot of polish is required for getting music finished. Yeah, I think the first time I started thinking about that level, because square pressure is like hyper uh, polish and product. It's it's so many minute edits go to his yeah. work and details and, and melodic details as well, isn't it? And square pressure really blows your mind. I remember I listened to Mike Paradinus a lot when I was, when I, I sort of, I sort of went to a library and saw this record with a reel-to-reel -reel machine on it and yeah. I thought, oh, well, that might be quite cool. And it turned out it was Mike Paradinus' album. And yeah, he was always very articulate um, sampling stuff. Um, but yeah, you're right, when, when I heard Square Pusher, it was just that taken to the next level, like micro details. Yeah. Um, and he's always pushed the, the, the boundaries really, hasn't he, Square Pusher? 
Yeah, he really has. I mean, I think a lot in a lot of ways, what what happened with Jungle and that that kind of stuff, the Square Pusher stuff, and uh, I did a record on Planet Mew that was around '97. That was very similar levels of hyper editing. It, it it burned very brightly all that stuff, but it it was kind of like punk in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, Jungle the same really came to a kind of fairly logical conclusion. Um, and then didn't change, it hasn't really changed much since the late 90s. I think they were a lot of the jungle records as well, what's great about them, like the electro records, the early electro, they were born through limitations. They were born through limitations of the hardware, of the amount of gear people had. You couldn't make a hundred tracks of audio and fill out, fill out every frequency range. In jungle you had your bass line and a break and maybe an effecty sound. And that's what gave it the atmosphere, and so those limitations were great, weren't they, back they, in the day? Yeah, I guess that. Yeah, that's totally true, and certainly when tracking to tape, that's very true. But I guess what happened from about ninety two, ninety three onwards is that actually the limitation didn't so much become the technology as as much as your own time, mm-hmm. and that's I think what bred those hyper detail records is that is that because you weren't having to do a one a one shot to tape, you could sit there and finesse MIDI endlessly and yeah. infinitely, then you could spend as long as you wanted on one song. And then I guess by about ninety six when things like Cubose VST came out and then suddenly you were free to work on easily sixteen tracks on an average computer. Mm-hmm. Then yeah, time, time became the, the currency really. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because you can you can pour people pour weeks over sort of eight bars of music, um, and yeah, I think I've I've definitely tortured myself over hours and hours of making music, and you just make it worse, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just make it ten times worse. Yeah, I did. I kind of, I through Spymania, I got to know, I got to know Mike Paradinus um, because he was putting together a compilation of, I guess, I guess what you know now is like the post, I guess the post Square Pusher stuff, and uh, you know, and Aphex Twin was starting to change his music at that point as well, and he was pretty heavily influenced, I think, by Square Pusher, and so yeah, I did, I did a track on. Basically, the first compilation that Planet Mew did in about '97. So yeah, the first song I put out was on a compilation with Aphex Twin, which was pretty nice. That's amazing. Just <laughs> <laughs> awesome. a bit awesome. Just out of the blue, really. And then, yeah, and then I did like I think it was like the fourth release on Planet Mew, uh, and I, I helped Mike master the first Jagger album as well, the first release. So I, I was kind of a bit involved in. That's brilliant in the early days of Planet Mew and then it didn't really it didn't last that long and then I kind of started I ran out of money I mean even though I was actually making a bit of money then for music Mm -hmm. which was a fluke really but uh, yeah I started working in video games at that point 
Was music in computer games an influence for you? Is that something that, that sort of got you into games? or? I, I think that the certainly, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of chiptune stuff that you'd hear on Commodore 64, um, the, 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 the crazy limitations involved to, to make those things make music was a, you know, even if it wasn't a conscious influence, I'd, I'd spent a lot of the 80s listening to that. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, even though it wasn't like the music in the charts, they seemed to be progressing at the same kind of pace in complexity and technology. So that was a, it was a deep, deep influence on the music, even if I wasn't making chiptune stuff. But I, I guess when I was making a lot of music in the 90s, and it was this in pretty intense process, putting stuff together, kind of stuff I was doing, then I did, I was playing quite a lot of, I guess, SNES PlayStation games at that point. It was quite a good way of taking your brain out of just sitting in a room for 12 hours a day and writing music. Yeah. Not the most healthy thing <laughs> to do as opposed to making music. But um, it what was interesting was that suddenly there were quite a lot of jobs in games, you know, when, I mean, things like the Mega Drive and the SNES had been pretty big, but, you know, when PlayStation came around, it really opened it up to a mass market that meant there were lots of jobs available. So my background, um, my education was I did degree, a degree in computer-aided engineering design, mm -hmm. and that was, that was kind of industrial applications of 3D modeling, basically, and that led me towards quite a dry career. I just did it to get out of my hometown mm -hmm. and uh, but what what was a much more interesting avenue for that all those 3d modeling skills was was video games so I actually started out a company called Codemasters as a games tester and I kind of got the job because they were about to do this product called music which was a music production platform on the PlayStation mm -hmm. um, and so I spent the first few months just hammering testing that program and writing tracks with it and That's, that must have been great it was yeah well i mean it was a great way to get into the the, the process of developing video games because it was constant communication with the developers on what was working what wasn't working you know as a tester you just end up knowing something absolutely inside out mm -hmm. um but coupled with with actually trying to write tracks in it as well and you know getting feedback on on different ways that you could interact with it that should you know, I, I ended up making a lot of decisions that I could see change the design and stuff like that. So Yeah. Was, I wonder if those those the the ability that you had then or the opportunity you had then to make decisions musically have influenced where you are now and it put you in a position to make those same choices for hardware maybe. Um I, I guess I think I've always I've always been a finisher. I've always been a polisher. I've always seen the benefit in not leaving something half finished. That's not to say ninety nine percent of the things I do are finished. <laughs> They're not. But the point is to to really take that one percent and you know know the value of just doggedly just getting it finished. So focus. Focusing on it, yeah. And and that was the the thing I learned most from making video games is and it really helps when you're on a team, but it's like you you are attempting to make it 
pixel perfect, you're attempting to remove absolutely anything that doesn't fit in with the design ideology and to make sure that the, the, the experience of the user is just as seamless and obvious and transparent as possible. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that, that has absolutely affected everything I've done since. Yeah, and I guess because it's a music-based piece of software, um, I was talking to Kenny Young about the the joining of like the user interface, the controls with the sound, and how important that is. Yeah. And he said about a couple of times where all he'd done was change the sound effects on a certain part of a game, and everyone else thought the gameplay had got a lot better. Yeah. But it, all it was was yeah. a simple thing that he'd changed, like the attack on a couple of the sounds, or there was something less repetitive. So yeah, it's interesting that the fusion of making a mu of testing a music program for a console is, yes, it's the 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 unity of the whole thing with the sound too. Yeah, and it, it becomes. I mean, with that product in particular as well, it when if if you just in a completely abstract way look at what people who were good at using it were doing with their hands, they could be playing a fighting game, you know, and so. Adding that, adding a kind of a, a level of dexterity to something like music production is really interesting because obviously that link is strongly there from, from performance, but it, it's not, it wasn't at that time, there wasn't a strong link between using a door or, or Cubase or a MIDI sequencer with that kind of dexterity. So it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting. It felt yeah, like I, I wonder what would have happened if they'd have made those music making programs for the SNES or for the Mega Drive, like made a tracker for them. That would have been amazing, wouldn't well, it? Well, there was there was a thing on um, there was a thing on the SNES called Mario Paint, which was it was like I think it was a painting program, but it did happen to have a music creation. Yeah, it's it's like a notation thing, yeah. isn't it? I've seen it. Yeah, um, and there was a great there was a a, a label called Erdal Discs who just did some amazing music. Like, I think they came out of Acid House and then they just went off on their own crazy tangent and there was a there was a great record called Mario Paint where they just took a bunch of different kind of techno artists and just made them make a song of Mario <laughs> and you know they were just like it was almost like that black midi craze yeah, where yeah, people are you that, know yeah. there's 700 modes a minute or a second coming out of it and so yeah the people were already you know really uh, misusing technology like that. I mean, actually, I then went into doing sound design mm -hmm. and uh, managing an audio department in a in a video game company but oh yes so that was relentless that was relentless but actually before that I spent a year working at Lego and that was that was about 2000 I think and that was really influential because I got to spend a lot of time yeah, I was based in Slough but I actually got to spend a lot of time in Denmark as well in the main design offices nice. um, and again that really focused me even heavier on um, product design and and you know making products that are just absolutely 
kind of as airtight as possible and finished. And Rock I got, solid, yeah. Yeah, and I got involved at that point in... Um, they were trying to make musical games with Lego. And there was a working group on that and I I actually supposed to be making like a racing game, designing a racing game, which I think did come out eventually. But I I realised that in a company like Lego, there's like 20,000 employees, it's insane. Um, and you could, to some degree, you could kind of end up doing what you wanted. And so I decided I was just going to spend a lot of time in Denmark with this group <laughs> who were looking at making music products. And Lego would just throw money at that stuff, even if there was no result. And yeah, getting involved with, you know, developing the, helping test the music program on PlayStation was one thing, but getting involved in the design, the actual design of, of music software basically yeah. was was one of the things that influenced me then to move into doing from doing basically game design into doing sound effects sound design ambience and, and music for games mm -hmm. yeah so um, then you went to Bournemouth to study sound design yeah so I mean one thing there's lots of upsides about working on teams of people in video games one of the downsides is that companies in the UK just go bust constantly so I think I got made redundant two or three times that was pretty much less than average as well in the 10 years or so that I was making games but mm. um, I could see that I was going to get made redundant again because it, it's all due to the, the, the way that games are funded they're just incredibly expensive and if you don't move straight onto a next another project then companies just go bust it's it's really cutthroat. Yeah, I remember Codemasters turned into Blitz games, didn't they? I don't... Um, Some, something along those I lines. Think, I don't, I'm not sure they did. I think they may be... I, do, I think Blitz was actually originally a split-off from Codemasters, that, but that was a, I think that was a long time ago. Right. But the com companies are all... They're all constantly changing form and adapting and kind of just trying to stay alive all the time is you know it can be incredibly lucrative but it's so expensive yeah I think it's easy to see the, the lucrative big winners and yeah. not look at all the I mean there are some terrible games made that's just yeah. a fact yeah but do, you, do you know Stuart Ashens do you, do you I don't know uh, so he reviews stuff on YouTube he reviews like bad uh, just generally shit from Poundland that's rubbish and, yeah. and talks about how rubbish it is. But he has got a computer gaming background and he's written two books called Terrible Old Games You've Probably Never Heard Of, <laughs> which are hilarious, both of them. They're really good. He's just released the second one, which was Attack of the Flickering Skeletons. But if you're into old games, yeah. you're into old games that are terrible... Um, yeah, I'd really recommend those books. They're really funny. For like, you know, in you know, in games where you've got like all the frames of animation of Sonic the Hedgehog running, yeah. and there's like sixteen frames. Yeah. He's got a book, and there's two frames <laughs> of animation, and he he explains what each of those frames is doing. <laughs> it's really funny. It's Nobody really wants good. to make those games. That's the thing. The people making them didn't want to make them that bad either. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's to, definitely. But, but the you know, compared to, it's such a world away from sitting in your bedroom. Making music on your own to 
the amount of money required to support 20 or 30 people working together on a product so yeah especially if it overruns if you if you yeah. haven't quite got it how you want it like you say if you, you you get a sort of work ethic from a company like lego you know what's a good product you yeah. know you can't release this now yeah even though the deadline is next week so then yeah exactly the financial considerations must be yeah pretty big yeah they are situations like games like driver 3 do you remember when that came out and they sort of they've made it for years haven't they i think yeah they took ages and then they just basically bribed all the magazines to say you've got to review this and tell everyone it's good and it was terrible and then the internet uprose against it and uh, yeah about a year later the a good version of the game came out but by then there was just there was no hope for them you can't do that anymore you can't get away with that anymore the internet has you know certainly made that a lot harder definitely um, absolutely yeah the, the flip side of that is you know I know a lot of people making games who you know have stopped or don't or, or really don't want to engage anymore because there's also a very there's quite a dark underbelly to the way that fans interact with games that really yeah you know there's there, there's really, there's a very abusive culture from gamers Mm-hmm. Um, I guess they're very it's sort of a bit like music isn't it maybe they, they, they want to, to play the next game they want from you has got to be a bit similar to the last one but not a world away Yeah, you know it's yeah. not like the Amnesiac Radiohead album which everyone's like oh fuck that it's a load of electronic bullshit <laughs> <laughs> you know that was the one I liked. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I love, I love that album. That's one of my favourites. But that's the one where I think people who like wanted it to stay all guitar-y yeah, just yeah. like, what the fuck are you doing? But obviously they, it took them in a great direction. I think there's something about... And that influenced why I ended up starting Thonk was there's also just incredible secrecy in the games industry. And it's for sometimes it's for good reason because there are millions and millions of pounds of dollars invested in things. So people get very paranoid about anyone finding out what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But that is a real loggerheads with with the way information shared on the internet these days. So it, it can be kind of very isolating, especially if you're kind of very technology focused as well, that you're not really able to interact with your peers. Mm-hmm. And you're not really able to interact directly with customers, and maybe you don't want to, because it can be quite negative. But that's what's been really interesting about the synth explosion in the past few years and modular synths in particular is there's a very tight constant dialogue between the manufacturers, the shops and the distributors and the people using it um, and that's a very fulfilling yeah and it, it, it's a it's a very supportive community isn't it I find that's that's the thing that is refreshing to me yeah, there's a lot of companies that don't tread on each other's toes and they do share ideas and, and things are open source. Yeah. That's that's the other amazing thing that blows my mind is the open source thing. Yeah, you couldn't get further away from certainly the, the that video game culture that had come from incredibly private. They don't nobody wants anyone to know what they're doing or how they've done it to um, working with someone like Tom Whitewell who makes the music thing modular designs the modules that I then sell and, and make and make kits of is 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 just a 
just a total dump of here's everything I did to make this. You can go away and make this yourself if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an honesty in that. There's also quite an interesting bravado in that as well of come on, have a look, you know, yeah. tell me what I could have done better. And yeah. people do, and there are always things that can be done better. Yeah. I think there's a good educational <clears throat> element in there too, because you can, you can, anyone who doesn't know how it works can, can look at the code and say, oh, okay, that's that button press happening, and then that goes to there. Um, yeah, yeah it's it, good. It, it's, I think it's amazing. I think the, the thing is, I think someone who's my age who, you know, I went to university in 93, and really the internet became a usable thing in 93, 94, 95. It was clunky, but, um, you know, being there at the start and then seeing it evolve into things like mailing lists and forums. And for 10 years, it was, everyone was just scrabbling around trying to work out how to make these things useful. They were fun, but no one knew how to make them useful. And then about 10 years ago, that started to really solidify into very niche communities starting up, sharing a lot of knowledge, and then I think what you've seen with the modular explosion recently is the access to knowledge just being so great now, and the barrier to entry for anyone wanting to either use this stuff or start designing it is just so tiny now. It's mm-hmm. you know it's but it's taken it took twenty years to get to that point of the internet maturing. So you, you described Thonk as being like a hardware record label. You did also run a record label prior to starting yeah. up Thonk as well, is that correct? Yeah, no, I run uh, with with a, a friend, Laz, run a label called Hand on the Plow. Um, we, uh, we started making music together, I guess kind of early 2000s. Um, we decided to start making a vinyl record label at the point where vinyl sales were just plummeting through the floor. <laughs> the right moment. Where Do you know when you look at, <laughs> look at the graph of vinyl and it does that thing where it just goes to nothing mid-2000s and then shoots up into the sky? Uh, yeah, we made a rec- we did a record label at that point where it was diving into the ground. So just in the, in the time where there was like, yeah, brilliant, that's perfect timing. But, um, but creatively it was, it was really successful and we got we got really good um, critical feedback on it, and it opened a lot of interesting doors. And we we ended up doing a record on Matthew Herbert's Sounds Like label as well. Um, and it was quite the music was pretty different from the stuff I'd been doing with Planet Mew earlier. Um, but yeah, again, it, it it kind of ties into that whole enabler thing, and it you know with a with a kind of a manufacturing deadline on getting vinyl made and that feeding back into how quickly you might have to get the creative process done, I found that very creative as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that process of being focused on ultimately getting a physical object made or, or getting product done 
uh, was a was a big influence on funk as well. Um, yeah. And it, I kind of learned the skills of of yeah communicating to people how they need to get stuff done <laughs> without being like without like grabbing their head and there's no yeah to do it. I mean that's the thing I don't it makes something makes me feel a bit old because I don't know how when you make purely digital music you know when it's finished because there's nothing like a, having a date set in stone where you're going to go and have uh, a record cut mm. to focus your mind to go shit I don't want to let myself down here I don't want to let other people down you know yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is an incredible focus to have and if you don't have a record label who are providing that structure for you to say you need to get this done I think most people can't it's a very it's a very it's it's very few people who can work without those kind of yeah I think that, that's very true that's very true and like we were talking about jungle having limitations like yeah those limitations are good to keep you in yeah to keep you from to make sure that you do do it my melody said the same thing of give yeah. yourself a deadline when you're making something because otherwise it will just go off. And actually, he gave me my deadline to start the podcast because I was like, I don't know. I don't know if it's ready. I don't know if it's going to be good enough. don't know if people are going to like it. And he was like, just have a bet with me now that you're going to do it on October the 1st. That's when the first one's going to come out. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. It's not good enough. No one's going to like it. It's going to be shit. And he was just saying, you know, set yourself a deadline. So, yeah, I do have him to thank for setting me a deadline for getting this yeah, right. off the ground. <laughs> I think so, yeah, actually you talk about jungle. The, the the part of it was the part of it was those hardware limitations where you literally couldn't perhaps do more than you'd done. But also there was a very strong dub plate culture. So there was always I think for the the more successful artists there was always a strong you know, they'd want to have it finished maybe by Thursday so that they could get a dub plate cut on the Friday so that they were playing it out. The blue note on Friday night or whatever, mm. do you know? So, yeah, um, you know, I, I think whenever you look at really successful scenes like that, there, there are always drivers like that that are pushing people to get things finished. Mm. Yeah, limitation is a good thing. So, cool. So, yeah, that must have been useful for your hardware, your hardware record label you started called Thonk. So, that came off the back of Tom Whitwell's Turing machine. Is that right? Yeah, so he he designed this module that I think instantly as he was describing it and demoing it, people were going, oh, that's what I've been looking for. It was a way of of taking what was really interesting about modular synths, which was been able to harness kind of random generation of notes or CVs or, uh, or modulation levels and but be able to use it musically. It had a, it had a feature where you could have a continually random stream of notes, but then you could kind of lock whatever the last eight or sixteen were and create a loop. But then have that loop gradually crawl or morph over time into something else, and it was just mm-hmm. instantly hands on and musical. Um, and he yeah he put it out of that open source with the idea that um, people could just get everything they needed manufactured themselves but it just tied in with me noticing a lot of different producers out there making PCBs and stuff and it just became obvious to me that I could become a distributor for this stuff and make a store 
make it easier for the designers to focus on what they needed to be doing, which is just design, just looking at how to make musical instruments. Um, and yeah, that was the start of Thonk, and it tied in with also me getting made redundant for the third time from a games job. Um, and it was one of those moments, I think I've had a few times in my life where I'm like, this is a brilliant idea, someone should do this. And then I didn't get off my ass and did it. And I was like, yeah, there we go. Okay. So I seem to be able to have ideas that <laughs> could be successful. Yeah, that's and good. It, it was the first time, though, that I actually did it instead of talking about it. Cool. Well, yeah. well you've done really well with it, you know. You've obviously uh, implemented everything very, very well, and you've set up a, a very respectable company. Um, with a big audience and yeah are, are you the are you the sole do you, are you the only place you can get the music thing thing for? Um, we it's still open source so anyone could make it themselves but we I think we've just done it at a level where we've made it a no brainer to buy it from us because we were able to do the kind of volume that let us sell it at an attractive price yet still make it a profit that supports the company lets mm -hmm. the company keep growing and it's let us add so many other products and pull in you know stuff from all around the world we've become a kind of a synth DIY supermarket that so we we spent a long time really without much competition and now there's there's stores in the States that do the same kind of thing but mm -hmm. We kind of all work together, really. The market is growing at a rate that we can't cope with, which is a nice place to be. Also, quite quite stressful and frustrating at times. But yeah, we you know there's six of us now, Thonk, and we're still growing and we're still not even nearly meeting demand. And there's just a constant flow of new musicians becoming new customers with us all the time. So. Um, you know, I think people thought it might be a bubble, but if it is, it's still growing, or at any rate, the people designing instruments still aren't satisfying how many people there are out there wanting to get into it. Yeah, it is huge, and it? yeah, it is sort of growing exponentially, um, and more and more people I know make music are talking about it, and I mean, even things like VCV Rack, which has come out, which is like a software thing, reactor blocks, all that sort of stuff. It's yeah. it's emulating your rack. Yeah. So yeah, your rack in general is is huge, um, but yeah, it it is a supportive industry. That's the amazing thing I find. So you go to, am I right? Thinking you go to like Super Booth and yeah, and do yeah. You go, what what where do you go to sort of show off your stuff? Um, I we well I I um. I also help run a, a, an event in Brighton called the Brighton Modular Meet, which actually is where I met Tom Whitwell for the first time about six or seven years ago. Um, and we've grown from it being 20 guys in a church hall to being, you know, a couple of hundred people now. Um, it's really good. I went last year. It was yeah, right. absolutely fantastic. Really good event. Yeah, the, the, it's just the really, I think what's, what really brings it together now is there are so many interesting artists using the technology as well you know it did it did start in a place where you'd feel like this is this is fascinating stuff and I love these synths and I love what I'm getting out of them but are they are they truly tools that musicians are going to use and people sometimes create these monolithic systems that you know might be a joy to use but they're not the most productive tools mm -hmm. for making music at the end of the day they're a great way of just spending all evening <laughs> 
enjoying yourself but maybe not achieving much but I think what's really happened in the last two or three years is you're seeing how artists are taking the technology and maybe stripping it down to the bare essentials of what they need to really actually make music in, yeah. in, in either in context of a commercial career or a totally totally creative endeavour yeah and so that's the I think that's the boost that's given it longevity people are now looking at the way artists are using you know putting together your rack systems and they look at what maybe Aphex Twin had at Field Day or you know you see LCD sound system appear and Jules Holland out of the blue and they've they've got a stage full of modulars and they're not just there for show they're really using them mm -hmm. or you know someone like Surgeon who, Surgeon I was going to mention Surgeon you know he doesn't DJ anymore yeah really he just takes out this pretty small two-row case and does improvised techno um, or you know an artist like we had Russell Haswell play at the Brighton Modular Meet and he's on a totally experimental um kind of noise music tip yeah and he supported Orteca in, yeah. at the Concord last year yeah, yeah we, we were stood right by the speakers it was mental yeah. but there's not a lot of difference between the gear that he's got and Aphex has got or the LCD sound system have got in mm. a way you know that is and the, the, the difference between those types of music is pretty pretty large but the way that people like interacting with it, what, what what's good about it from a user interface point of view is the same. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's been heartening to see artists getting into it. So. do you have like an R&D process then for the stuff that you sell do you have do you, are you making music on a Eurorack and decide oh we need something that does this uh, yeah yeah I mean that is that's constantly happening but the, the way that the community exists and interacts with itself is that is the conversation that is the constant conversation mm -hmm. um, uh, at the moment I mean that's kind of where Thunk started it would be like blatantly there's no affordable DIY solution of a sample and hold or something we've got to try and get that into the store mm -hmm. but to be honest now it's just an avalanche <laughs> and we just try and pick what we can out of the avalanche that we think looks interesting and get it out there I mean one you know one problem with the modular stuff is it's expensive so it isn't um, it isn't accessible to quite a broad range of of people and the, the community is is not the most diverse either so one thing that really attracted me to DIY was to both um, enable people to get into this stuff a lot cheaper but it also has an aspect of if you start learning how to put this stuff together you can fix it you're a lot less likely to throw it away mm -hmm. you're a lot more likely to have a, a direct to, to have an attachment to the gear that stops it being just gas stops it being just the gear acquisition syndrome <laughs> thing you know you're not just buying for the sake of it so and you know I know that I've got customers who build their own gear and then they've gone on to be able to fix 
other pieces of gear as well. So there, there's something there's something quite democratic and more sustainable about about DIY as, as opposed to retail shopping. Just buying, yeah, like consumerism. It's sort of yeah. Yeah, and everyone I know who builds your rack, if they do have a faulty module or whatever, yeah, they do go and and try and fix themselves. And if they can't, they know someone who can. It's yeah. It's I mean. Um, someone like Matt Copeland you know Matt Copeland like, yeah, he's yeah. an amazing guy I know he's a friend of a friend of mine and he's just able to draw schematics for you on a table of whatever you need and okay. like that level of knowledge is really phenomenal but he's got there a, a little bit like um, someone who was at the Modular Meet last year look mum no computer yeah, yeah like he I think I read he's only fairly recently got into electronics like in the last six or so years and what he's building now is absolutely phenomenal and really inspiring for people yeah. to go, wow, I can I can pick up that. And it's fun and it's a tactile object. It's not yeah, a yeah, yeah. thing on an iPad that has no sort of soul. I think, uh, yeah, I first I think I first met Sam like about, when I was starting Thong, like four or five years ago, um, at a modular meet. And yeah, he was, even at that point, he was, kind of wild-eyed about the stuff who's looking at it going I've got to start making this and you know he's a great example of someone who's the speed at which he was able to I mean he's a very talented person don't get me wrong but the speed of which he was able to get to where he is now of building these huge machines is because of that just rich dense knowledge that's available it's, it's incredible yeah so part of me thinks that Thonk might be almost like self-defeating one day I might really <laughs> maybe I'll enable people too much and then they'll all be able to do it all you're essentially marketing kryptonite for yeah. yourself <laughs> but that's a, but that I love that I love that idea that it um, you know it will I think that I guess I'm you know as, as Thonk is a centralised resource and I think what you've seen in the last 20 years is eventually the centralised resources of knowledge kind of do either just dissipate and change and you know who knows what people will just be printing stuff at home in 10 years maybe possibly I, I, the way I like to look at it is the you know there will always be people who don't know everything about it you know there'll be there'll be people that drive themselves to know everything yeah um, I think time is also an issue in everyone's lives isn't it you know how much time can I devote to learning yeah. how to build a PCB and then getting it made in China and having it come back and patience as well, I guess, comes yeah. into it. So I, I don't think you are creating something that's self-defeating. I think there will always be people that are new to the scene that are inspired by it. Um, some people don't want the DIY. This is why I make the RP that um, Jason Hotchkiss designs. Yeah. You know, he designs amazing things and I bought it as a kit. And I realised, oh, probably people would want this as a finished product. So I approached him in 2015 when I happened to move to Eastbourne and said, oh, yeah, maybe I could sell these as finished products. And that, you know, that's gone amazingly well. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, he's still shifting a lot of kits. Yeah. But there is still a market for people. People approach him all the time and say, oh, we can, can you get this as a finished product? Is anyone making this? Yeah. And they come to me. So I guess... Yeah, I, th I think there's, there's always people that haven't... Well, there's also, I, I think what's happening as well is there's a, there's, there's a generation now of people who don't consider anything other than building it themselves. 
And because things like Thunk have been around long enough and become perhaps people's first exposure to modular synths or, or, or that kind of tool, mm-hmm. that it's they're native to it. They actually don't consider that they'd buy this stuff themselves. They've always come from the viewpoint of making it. Yeah, I'm and absolutely in that country because I'm such a stingy bastard with my money, you know? I always buy broken gear yeah. off eBay. Broken gear off eBay and, and module and kits. Yeah, and it, it, in the same way as when you get older and you see kids doing things with computers and you just think, how do you know about that? How did you get into that? They've been doing it since they're 11. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, that, and that is happening with synth DIY as well. There's, there's other ways people are getting into it that are enabling them from even younger. And, and also the way that you can buy parts directly from China now mm-hmm. as well. It's, you know the globe the the globalization of the market has has made it openly available to yeah. the West. and I think I think as a company you do you've diversified your product range quite a lot instead like you don't just sell DIY kits do you you've got uh, desktop synths you sell like the Bastille yeah yeah ones. we do we do a few bits of desktop gear it's what it's interesting though that that stuff doesn't sell as well and easily for us. It's not, there's, it, it became really obvious at the point where we tried to start selling some desktop stuff. It's very attractive to people doing the modular stuff and also very attractive to people who are maybe interested in the modular but don't want to dive in totally. But that stuff still falls outside of this whirling community that is self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, a little bit. Yeah, that, yeah, that was a that was an interesting lesson, um, and you know, it that self sustaining community is is eyed up by bigger companies and corporations jealously, um, and they realise that we don't need them, but that we hold a lot of information that they're really interested in, and it's true of a lot of the magazines as well, like. Future music, sound on sound. They, they really see the value from a from a positive point of view of what's been built. Um, but they also understand that we don't need to advertise in their magazines mm-hmm. because we have people sitting there already part of the community waiting to see what we're going to do. So it is a, it is quite a punk thing. Yeah. Um, and it's it's sort of it's it's a di- it can, you can be dynamic when you're a small company uh, or or like a small sort of industry you can be super dynamic. So if let's say someone on the Muff Wiggler forum says, oh, why isn't there a module that does this? Yeah. Three months down the line, they can have that module that can be a company which sets it up and does it. Whereas Roland's, yeah. who are just knocking off another nine oh nine clone or another TO eight clone because they're a bit scared of what they might be able to make. Yeah. I think it's a great thing. I think it's really good because those big music companies that got lazy, a bit like the fi- I wish something like this would happen to the film industry, yeah. you know? Because yeah. like all the big films are like remakes and Alien versus Predator and, and all that sort of shit where originality has just almost disappeared from the mainstream yeah. films. I w- this is great for gear. It's really good because it makes, it makes people like Korg and Roland and all the big gear makers, they have to, and Aturia as well, they have to now step up and make great gear. And I think we're starting to see that happen a little bit. Yeah, I 
I, you know, five, ten years ago, I didn't have a lot of respect anymore for the products coming out of Cork and Roland, I guess. And that has changed. I mean, it's still not for me, maybe, what Roland are doing. But then, you know, they, they humbly partnered with Maleco to make the recreations of their 100M modular, you know, and they weren't being manufactured, I don't think, at Roland. They were manufactured in the US at, at Maleco, who, mm. are, who are a Eurorack manufacturer. So they, I think they do, they do see what's happening and how they can interact with that. I mean, Cork yeah. as well, have, they obviously had a guy who was pretty visionary working there who, I can't remember his name, but he's now left... Mm-hmm. Um, Japanese companies though are slow to adapt it's, the, it's exactly the same as video games looking at what a company like Nintendo would do it almost takes somebody to die <laughs> for a company cultures to change it's not like it's <laughs> not it's flippant it's a hitman, hitman in the competition <laughs> going, right, get that guy in it's not, <laughs> it's not a flippant or morbid comment but those you know the benefit fresh blood the what makes Japanese companies perhaps so incredible in some ways of having such incredible focus that isn't as market-led as American companies is also can be their downfall where you see Roland churning out the same average products for 15 years, but they have changed. So Yeah, they have. And what also springs to mind, talking about like modern big uh, manufacturers is um, teenage engineering. They were sort of like renegades, you know. They were they were the indie yeah. sort of. T- they had the indie mentality, the punk mentality. Yeah. But they were able to translate that into f- really fantastic products, really well designed. Really like what I love about the OP one is it's got industrial uh, faded like nozzle yeah. potentiometers. Like they are seriously hard wearing things. They're not. There's not. Um, um, what's it called, like planned obsolescence, you know, yeah. there's none of that sort of, in six months' time, we'll know this is going to break, like they did with the Xbox 360s, wasn't it, after their, was it like the 90-day warranty, or yeah. like three-year yeah. warranty came to an end, and they just all suddenly had the red rings of death, like, yeah. I love the philosophy of teenage engineering, because yeah. they make it, like, all the pocket operators are brilliant, you know, for yeah. the money, they're amazing, amazing machines. And they're, they're you know, the companies like Teenage Engineering, and Electron as well. Yes, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. obviously they obviously come from the same mindset as a lot of the modular companies, but they've they've they're trying to compete with Roland and Korg, and that's the nice thing about the modular world is it's not it's not competing with those big companies really. Mm-hmm. It's starting to become the case, but it is its own thing. Um, like yeah, I, I'm really. I've, I think I've been really influenced. We've been lucky in the UK to have the independent record label culture, and that that DIY culture is really strong in the UK. And uh, the other influence I had that is another thing that makes me think I can start a business. I can, you know, I could do this. Is actually looking at what happened in something like skateboarding, where there was a huge up kind of uprise in the eighties of of skater-led companies who said we don't want to get involved with Nike or those big sports companies we'll just do this ourselves and the, the, the weird thing is you find obviously you find a lot of people into independent music in modular synths 
There's so many people who are ex-skateboarders and there's a really strong culture of just taking no notice of what the corporations are doing or big business and just making your own scene. Um, yeah. And so Tony, from, Tony from Make Noise is a is a keen skateboarder and came really? from that culture as well. And it, it's a yeah, it's a very, very strong kind of self-led kind of thing. Yeah, I guess it's uh, you could just again call it that punk spirit or like an alternative mentality, where you're not relying on the establishment to tell yeah. you what music to like or tell you what products to buy or what clothes to wear. It's it's yeah, like a it's like the people I know who are surfers. They're they they're very different people, but they're very much their own. Yeah. Uh, they're happy to be doing what they're doing in their in their in their own way. They don't need the big brands yeah. or anything like no, that. No, you take you take your core of your strength comes from something outside of commercial culture. But that's not to say though that record labels and people making skateboards and people making synth don't rely heavily on the machinery of corporate culture though mm -hmm. we're just subverting it yeah that's <laughs> not awesome. you know we're not we're not Marxists seizing the means of production it's that uh, but there is something more democratic about the way that we're we're using those big systems to to make something not that's wholly good. commercial I have to look out for that new skateboarder element <laughs> of music yeah, now because it's always been computer. So yeah, what are your sort of flag flagship products then? What are your flagship things at, at Thunk? The I mean the the music thing modular range is is really our bread and butter. It's what allowed us to grow really quickly. So the, the main modules really are there's the Turing machine, which is a is a really nice way of musically interacting with random generations. So there's there's a white noise generator in it that produces constantly random, a random source of voltage and then you're able to kind of either tap off notes from that or there's expanders to the module that let you create other outputs so you from from the one module you can have it controlling the, the note value, you can have it controlling your cutoff on your filter or the depth of the envelope. Um, but yeah, as the randomness slowly crawls and changes over time, all the things you're controlling it with are also morphing organically and interconnectedly together. And it, uh, it's, it's a very easy thing to use, even though it sounds very complex to describe, when you just use it, you're really just turning one knob mm -hmm. to control all the functionality. And I, I think the reason it really caught people's attention is that it can become the heart of the modular and be the source of the interesting source of everything interesting that comes out of it. Um, and it's been it seemed like people like Surgeon have it in their system, and they, you know, it is it is one of the beating hearts of their system, and it you know powers the way that they work. It's great for improvisation, but it's great for improvisation that sounds very musical 
Yeah, yeah. And I think I heard Tom Whitwell talking about it, saying how it, um, it's like a cognitive thing that humans like. We like repetition, Yeah. but we also like uh, something that sort of pushes our expectations a little bit. And I think it's, yeah. it, it feels to me, I don't have one, but I have played with one. It feels to me like it's doing, it's ticking those two boxes, which is like yeah. excitingly experimental and randomness with uh, sort of a... Uh, not a strict, a strict, strict parameters, but it's keep. It's not going too far that that it, it becomes sort of really abstract jazz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, I guess what it, what it lets you do, which if you're interested in the mechanics of music, it really lets you play with that line, and it lets you explore. You know, you find yourself making judgments that are really interesting about. Oh, I've gone too far. That is just random now, and yet you change one tiny element, and you. You're suddenly like no now that's techno or now that's sounding a bit like Steve Reich or Philip Glass or so it yeah it I think people just really talk to it because it it's a really useful tool but it, it just lets you explore randomness in a musical way um, mm-hmm. and then uh, one of the other big sellers for music thing is a module called radio music which on the face of it is basically a sample player. It has an SD card in it. You can have 16 gig of, of samples on it. Um, but it has this kind of conceit, which is it it's set up like a radio station. So when you start playing a long file, if you then change the knob called station, which essentially changes the file, if you move to another file and then move back to the original one, the original one's still been playing in the background like it's a radio um, and it's a very simple concept but it just pushed people to use samples in a, just a slightly different way than they had before um, and there's a random again a random aspect to it but yeah you can re-trigger reliably at different point, points in the sample you can some people stick an amen break in there mm-hmm. and do use it to chop up jungle and you can do that Cool. But because it's got such a huge capacity now, I think you can put up to a 32 gig card in it. People just take huge long recordings of stuff and, you know, serendipity of what might end up playing. Yeah, um, I, I know for me, for me personally, we've been in the studio and there's been the radio thing in the background when we're playing synths and stuff. And the amount of brilliant like you say serendipitous moments where so, where you've decided to take the kick drum out and the radio thing's going and it's a scientist talking about the television in the <laughs> 70s and it, it, there's something about it really working really well yeah like you say on, on the face of it, it it does something very simple but yeah it, it it's a really 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 great machine and i think it's a bit iconic because uh, the other week someone posted something on twitter about um a dx7 programming tape that came with the DX7. It's like forty-five minutes of a man going, select operator four and yeah. turn up. Maybe it's not that. It's not that long ago. It was in the eighties sometime. But Mylar Melody's first response was, "That's going straight in the yeah. radio." You yeah. know, like it's it's well, so iconic. It's and it's I think it's tapped into as well. Like I've talked about this kind of whirling community of constant feedback and um, in, interaction, but actually the. The radio music is kind of what 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 happens when you've got modular synths. You just generate hours and hours and hours of recordings, if you're not careful, or if you're mm-hmm. careful. 
know, some people don't record anything, which is just as bad. But what people start doing is take those that huge archive of recordings and stick it on the card, put it back in the radio music, start sampling themselves again from the output that they've been, all those noodles and jams they're creating. So it's become a tool to recycle and reuse material as well. Um, which is such a genius idea. Yeah, it's just really, and you know, I, that's the nice thing about the modular format is you just put very simple but nicely interactive tools out there and it's going to end up interacting with 400 different modules and mm. people use it in totally different ways. It's so amazing. One of my questions here was, do you have any modules used in a surprising way? You just sort of answered that question. Yeah. And I've never even thought of doing that. And it's super simple, but yeah. it's like the resampler. Ableton has a resampler yeah. in it, which I wish all DAWs had. Um, but even that, it, yeah, I mean, for the radio thing, yeah, you put your own stuff in it. Um, I think Lego World talks about doing that, doesn't he? Like yeah. sampling, just yeah. playing the keys for a bit and chucking it in. And I, I remember I used to do that, making music, and I always thought, oh, this isn't the right way to make music. This is... This is just some amateur stupid thing I've invented, or not You know, I just like yeah. I'm recording myself playing it badly. Is this yeah. allowed? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, that's yeah. I think I think we're we're at a really good point as well, where people have realised what the benefits of different tools are, and you know, I think I remember when I started making music in the early nineties, I thought that everybody was recording stuff in a single take, and that all their tweaks. On the synths were done in one take and they would produce these perfect things <laughs> for your skill and then oh, and then you realize later on actually they just recorded that synth line eight times and then they're just cutting between different tracks of it and that again is another way of using radio music and but then on, on the other hand it's a super reliable thing to have in your modular where you can just know you're going to play something back and it will be exactly the same mm -hmm. because it's all very well constantly having you know free form modulating madness <laughs> but sometimes certainly if you're gigging you might want to be able to snap back to something reliable so there's, yeah. we see quite a lot of artists using radio music for that reason like Chris Carter it's, uh, I think uh, he did a show at the Leeds module meeting last year and he had like three or four in there scanner as well mm -hmm. uses it as well it just sits on a nice sits on a nice boundary of being reliable yet um, experimental yeah know. I know there's a guy who I really like called VCO he used to be called VCO ADSR yeah, I think he's based yeah. in Brighton I, like, I really of all the people who make modular his stuff to me is like re like perfect it's ridiculously good it's the music I want to hear yeah. when I go to a club and yeah he's he's he said about um, doing those things which is preparing a few synth lines for for your for your performance so it's not just like oh god where have I gone with yeah. this everyone's leaving yeah. the room you know um, yeah well it's been just been interesting hearing actually he just changed his artist name he's called Ebsidic now yeah yeah but yeah it's been interesting watching Phil how he's changed the way he approaches performing live and I mean I don't I don't think that there are that many people out there who are as dedicated as him to constantly working out how to take modulars out there and, mm -hmm. and keep evolving with it really.
I've always been into hardware synths and I've always kind of played about with modular stuff. Like, I mean, I just heavily got into Nord Modular in kind of 97-ish, 98, because I couldn't afford a hardware modular at that point. Mm -hmm. they, were, they weren't so easy to get hold of affordably or it just wasn't easy. Um, so I've always kind of worked with modular gear, or that or Max MSP and that kind of thing. But the, as, as much as I enjoyed that, the, the computer was a barrier to a certain way of working. And when I started putting together a Euro rack, I realized that I was spending all day at that point in my day job cutting up digital audio. So I was just looking at a screen eight or nine hours a day cutting mm -hmm. up audio. And going home, pulling the modular out, there being no screen, um, it, Sometimes I'd be recording, but sometimes I'd be satisfied to just sit and play and turn it off four hours later and be satisfied. And it felt more like playing an acoustic guitar yeah, than, absolutely. than interacting with a computer because there's a meditative edge to it. Uh, and there's not, a, there's not a drive for resolution or to create a product or a finished piece of music. So it's a real outlet compared to what modern life is like I think it's different yeah it definitely is that I've, I've never thought about the parallel between playing acoustic guitar but you're exactly right that's exactly how it feels uh, I yeah I work in my day job staring at a computer all day looking at audio so I'm really not inclined to go home and do the same thing yeah but f I guess for me the outlet is Okay, there's a lot of Max MSP is my outlet, but uh, yeah, soldering, you know, soldering stuff and, and making kits. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, you don't look for resolution when you're making, when you're playing with modular, do you? you sort of, you very much. You, yeah, it's hel It's healthy, I think, and it, it's very. It doesn't tap into. It it feels like a separate thing to to yeah to to commercial culture and consumerism. It's not. It's not the same kind of thing. That's not to say there's not a heavy consumerist side to any musical instrument, of course, but mm. you're, you're a lot less likely to uh, fall into familiar paths than if you go out and buy a Strat and a big muff pedal. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, just to talk about your modules, you have a tape head. Uh, module that's music thing, isn't it? Is that, was it Magneto? Is that yeah, well, there's a, there's, there's a range of three modules that two of them are currently out, one's coming soon. The Magnetophon, which is a cassette tape head uh, mounted into the module or into a wand, and then you can play cassette tape like scratching a record. Uh, there's Microphony, which has is a is a kind of a contact mic preamp, so you can uh, contact mics just give you a whole other world of sounds to explore that. You know, you stick it on electronics or machines, and you you can produce sound that you, you don't normally hear mm -hmm. produced through air. And then Electrophon is um, has got a guitar uh, pickup in it, and again, you you can you can pick up sound in a way that is quite unnatural. And you put a guitar pickup on the side of a refrigerator, and there's a there's a huge beautiful constant drone piece oh, yeah Brian Eno's in your fridge yeah exactly yeah um, and I, you know that's another point Tom and I Tom for Music Thing and I gelled is that you know a lot of that stuff is influenced by uh, 
uh, things like Stockhausen and Steve Reich and Philip Glass and minimal music from tape music from the 60s and 70s but also I guess the kind of New York school of experimental music as well um, so they're, they're really focused on just different interesting inputs to get into the into the modular um, yeah. Laurie Anderson famously had a tape piece which was cassette tape kind of strung across a violin bow oh no mm-hmm. yeah the tape was on the violin bow and then the violin had a tape head in it and then she'd no way she'd bow the That's tape weird. yeah so the interesting thing about that range the fond range is that it it's very DIY again because actually you can almost make machines that interact with those things like putting tape on spinning wheels or yeah. making an interesting box to put contact mics on yeah since I've seen that module which was only a couple of days ago when you're demoing it with you have a strip of lots yeah. of different tapes on A4 and you're going back over it I thought that was absolutely amazing and I'm trying to I will come back to you on this I will design the perfect thing that will that will use them I was thinking like a a sort of a pulley some sort of pulley system where the tape head was on an arc and you could do something like that but there's scope for something to take that to some amazing level yeah totally for sure you you see bands using a lot of tape like Sculpture who are a fairly local band they they, they use tape loops and things and I I saw Holy Fuck as well I don't know if you know them Canadian band they had a tape thing but it was like it was um, it was a time code machine it was using because I spoke to him afterwards it was a time code thing with, with film on it uh, but it was like a, a like a big thick tape. I don't know what it was, but there was sort of like five reels of it. And when you pulled them, it was it would play back this sample. Yeah, right, nice. Yeah. Oh, I see. So he's got instead of audio on the tape, he's got time code written to the tape. So then, if you if you're controlling something else with that, then yeah, you are directly controlling the speed of it. I, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It, he said it was from like some. It was like some. It was for for film for for, for yeah. time going for something. I just sort of went out to me after the game. Like, oh, what's that amazing thing there? <laughs> what's, I think what's lovely about the modulars at the moment is that it there's a big loop happening as well because all of those things like the tape things or that time code thing you're talking about is we're almost looping back to what was happening in the sixties now. Um, what people like Terry Riley were doing with just a pair of tape machines to make a constantly evolving loop of music mm-hmm. or, or back to the early days of again in San Francisco of, of Morton Sobotnik who was using the early Buckler synthesizers and people the modulars are giving people ways of interacting with music that were being experimented on 50 years ago now but we're a step up we make it you know it's easy for anyone to get involved in that way of making music and you just cannot make normal commercial sounding music with this stuff yeah it yeah. might it tries you might yeah it's going to push you somewhere weird and it, and it won't sync with ableton and that's a good thing yes yeah you're right absolutely yeah and i think the tactile element is is something that people may be missing you know i yeah. i'm really against technology i'm so anti technology for for what i do you know i have a very old phone i don't have a smartphone i don't like yeah. touch screens at, at, Screens everywhere for me are like sort of this cyberpunk future 
of humanity. So yeah, and I love the, the tactile nature of, of just having a tape head in your fingertips. I think that's yeah. just such an awesome thing. I think that such though, awesome. I, I know what you mean about the, the kind of the touchscreen thing. It is, I think it is interesting to see what companies like Google are doing though. And they are, what they've done with image processing with something like DeepMind, they are starting to work on Mm-hmm. with audio and yes, yeah. you know in some ways I think perhaps while interface design and things like modular is is still evolving the, the guts of what's happening with analog synths or DSP synths behind the scenes the the rate of change of that stuff isn't so big so it is it will be really interesting to see how actually a company like Google can throw their big data um, method of working and seeing what, what happens with synthesis and they, and they they just released a new synth that I saw that is it the N super yeah synth it's fully open source at the moment it doesn't sound that interesting the interface isn't that interesting but and it will develop slower than anything visual because there's a much stronger interest in visual culture but when you look at what crazy images they're producing with like the deep mind software mm-hmm. um, you know that will come for audio as well. Yeah, I think in the video in the video they combine like flute and a and a snare, don't they? And, they, and yeah. then you've got like this intermediate area, which is a combination of the two, which reminded me a lot of that MIDI mutant thing. Have you seen the DX yeah. the Raspberry Pi thing yeah. that Aphex Twin was working on? Yeah. I love that. I think that's great. And I think you're right. The the sort of neural networky stuff, yeah, could take us in a new direction. There is a really great thing called. The Infinite Drum Machine, which is a Google-funded project where you've got a group of sounds and wherever you click in this group, they're similar sounds. So it's got like, I don't know, 100,000 sounds and it's just gone, they, yeah. these are acoustically all similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can use them as a drum machine and you can pick any of the sounds. Um, there were, there were tools cool. like, I mean, people have been trying to develop tools like that for sound designers as well because one of the really interesting things about doing sound design is that you you have to interact with sound at a level that is beyond, you don't think about how a sound was produced, you just start thinking about is it, do I need a kind of a friction sound or do I need a impact sound mm-hmm. and it, it sends you off, when you get good at it you get really good at going off on tangents and looking for sounds that do exactly the job you need but don't come from anything like the real source of what mm-hmm. you're trying to score. So, yeah, ways of grouping sound together in a purely sonic texture, you know, that is that is the future. And I don't I don't see that in five, ten years a thing like a radio music isn't gonna have that capability available because the speed at which the computing power in the radio music, this little teensy chip on the back of it, mm-hmm. puts a, a home computer from 15 years ago to shame yeah, yeah and it costs like less than a tenner and it's tiny um, and it almost making something like radio music with it is a it's not even beginning to push what push it, it can yeah. do yeah, but it doesn't matter because it's cheap as anything so I, I think that, that that's where the, the evolution is going to come for musical instruments it's going to be in the the tools that let you qu- more quickly get to the interesting content mm-hmm. and the generation of the content might not change that radically anymore but 
you know, and it's still going to be the people with a good ear that make the best out of those tools. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It doesn't. We don't want it to get to a point where it just does it all. It never you. will. It never will, and it never did. Like you know, people, um, people in the eighties thought that, you know. I don't know, someone like Depeche Mode on top of the top, pop, top of the pops, they just came on and pressed play and it was, mm-hmm. it never was, the, it never has been the case. Yeah, that's it never the, will be. The sceptical electronic music haters, are always yeah. the Chemical Brothers just press play, <laughs> they, yeah. they really don't just press play, <laughs> Orbital as well probably at that level. That yeah. yeah. Great, well it's been a really good chat, yeah, thank, thank you. you, thank you very much for talking to me. And all the best with um, with Thonk. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Well, it was really great to catch up with Steve. Uh, he's really a man of many talents, and uh, I didn't know that he'd set up Brighton Modular Meet, which is a huge event that's growing and growing and growing, like the Eurac industry is. Um, it was great to chat to him. So next episode, maybe next month, I don't know, next episode anyway, is going to be with somebody who is a phenomenal performance artist, who is very much at the forefront of the technology behind making music and the manipulation and control of the sound. That's all I'm going to say. Right, I am Midiera, this has been Midiera Meets. We will rendezvous back here in approximately one month's time. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.